Joel is a fourth-year senior student finishing up here at Moody Bible Institute. And uh, so we got some hand raising. That's good. I was a graduate myself many years ago. And uh, so we are very privileged to have Joel with us. Joel also, his, uh, his family has been, is it 20 years, surprisingly? Yeah, 21. 21 years are missionaries uh, that we support at, uh, at Sugar Grove at Tenalian Bible Camp in Port Owlsworth, uh, Alaska. And raise your hand if you've ever been to Tenalian Bible Camp. I know there's at least one in here. Two, three, we have three. Okay, so some of you have been there, and I know some are planning on returning again too. Uh, one of the great privileges we have uh, here with the three campuses is giving those, even our young men whose God is called to preach, the opportunity to do that. So, uh, Joel, we look forward to hearing what God will uh, you share with us uh, today. Good morning. Thank you all for uh, having me here today. Um, just want to give you a little bit of a warning. This, this passage here, as I studied it, I've uh, come to realize that it's really not a feel-good passage. It's not something that you're going to walk away from feeling happy, I guess. Um, there's a lot of rather direct instructions from Jesus to his disciples that we can apply to our lives as well. Um, after saying that, I want to just say that I am completely unworthy to be standing up here uh, saying these things to you because I know I struggle in so many of the same areas. So that being said, um, understand that I am I'm speaking this truth uh, through the authority of uh, Christ and the Bible and not through my own authority. So... It is important for each person to be better than everyone else at at least one thing. I heard this recently from a colleague at work. He said this as we were closing. He just randomly said it. And he wondered what I thought about it. So I told him. I thought that it was prideful and self-centered. And not what God has for us. But this is the mindset of the world. It is important for everyone to be good or be better than everyone else, at least one thing. That's the mindset of our world. And looking back on my life, I can see so many areas where that has been my own mindset. Probably one of the most easiest to see is in my relationship with my older brother. I have an older brother who's almost two years older than me, and ever since I was little, I was trying to be better than him at everything. It wasn't good enough for me to be as good as him. I had to be better than him. And then after that, I had to let him know that I was better than him at everything. And so I was constantly striving to do that. Um, and we would, we would have arguments, and we'd bicker back and forth and stuff like that. And we still do that today every once in a while. We still have little arguments and stuff about, you know, who's better than, at this than that. And I always win those. But that's, that's my mindset. I've got to be better than everybody at something. I strive to be better. I work to be better at people, or at stuff than other people. And not for the right reasons. I do it for my own glory. How often do we do that? We want to be the best employee. We want to be the best in athletics. We want to be the best in school. We want to be the pastor's favorite. How often is this our mindset? But today we're going to see something different. 
we're going to see Jesus give us a different picture. We're going to see him lay out that humility is a key part to following Jesus. And we find our passage today in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. We're starting in verse 30. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. Just by way of introduction, it says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. Here we see Jesus walking through the area of Galilee, the area where he spent most of his ministry. He spent most of his time in Galilee healing people, teaching people. It's where most of the amazing things happened in this area. But now something's different. Something's changed. We see that instead of stopping and teaching great crowds like he used to, instead of feeding thousands of people, instead of doing all these things, we see that he is passing through Galilee, and he didn't want anyone to know. The reason for this is because now Jesus has changed the focus of his ministry from the people, the great crowds of people, to teaching his disciples. Because he has gone from his public ministry and set his face to Jerusalem, and he is on his way to be crucified. Here he is, the cross, the shadow of the cross, already touching his feet as he's walking toward Jerusalem. And he wants his main focus to be on his disciples, the ones that are closest to him. So he's teaching them. And we see Jesus teach them, and he says to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This is the second time that Jesus has predicted his death. The first time, remember, it was in chapter 8, verse 31, when Peter pulled him aside and said, that's not going to happen, not on my watch. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And now Jesus says it again. The Son of Man is going to be handed over to man, and he's going to be killed. After he is killed, he will rise again. I know so many times, after having grown up in a Christian home, reading things like this don't hit me the way they should. Jesus, the Son of God, is saying he's going to be handed over into the hands of men. There's an aspect of this that I don't always see, and that is the great humility of the cross. You see, the great humility of the cross. But I want to take you back. I want to tell you a story real quick to fully get what I'm saying. We have to go back to the beginning. Go on a journey with me to the garden. You see, you're standing now in a garden, a beautiful garden. There's trees to your right that you never thought could look so green. And then to your left, you see grass, just amazing colors. The sun's glistening off the cherries, and you never thought they could be so red. In the distance, a lion is walking peacefully with a lamb, and there's perfect harmony within the garden. But the thing that catches your attention the most is right in the middle of the garden stands God. And there he stands over a pile of dirt, playing in his own divine sandbox. And he bends down 
and he picks up some dirt and he starts to form something. And you see the form take shape into the form of a man. You see God step back, look at it, and then breathe life into the man. And Adam is created. We all know the story then. Adam is put to sleep and a rib is taken and Eve is created from that rib. And then they have perfect harmony with God. But something happens and man's not satisfied with that and we sin. And we fall short of God. And we can no longer have perfect harmony with God. But then, thousands of years later, comes Jesus, God's son. He walks earth. He talks with people. All the while knowing that he is going to die for our sins. The hands that formed man were soon to be nailed to the cross by the hands of men. Can you see the humility of God in this? The humility of the cross to be willing to die for our sins because we sinned against God and we couldn't have a relationship with God anymore. And then he came to create a relationship with us because that there had to be a sacrifice for that. And it's through him that we can be saved. There's great humility in the cross. In Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, it says, starting in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And if Jesus, who is God, does not count equality with God something to grasp, why do I so many times? Why do I try to force my will when I should be seeking God's? Why do I try to strive for status when I should be glorifying God and doing everything to glorify God? If Jesus is willing to humble himself through death, even death on the cross, then why am I not humble too? There's great humility in the cross. Great humility in the cross. We see humility in the cross. We see the creator in the hands of the created. But we see also disciples don't get it. The cross didn't fit into the plan of the disciples. Verse 32 says, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. 
I believe there's two reasons why the disciples were afraid to ask Jesus. One is they remember what happened to Peter when he said something, and they don't want to be rebuked like that. So they're afraid of that. And the second reason is I bet they understood enough to know that what Jesus was saying was something that they didn't want to hear. The cross did not fit into their plans. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to die. The disciples thought they were on their way to Jerusalem to overthrow the Romans and be set up as kings. That was their plan all along. That's what they thought was going on. Their plans didn't fit into the plan of God. The cross didn't fit into this. We see that the next section. It's, it's shown in the pride of the disciples. Verse 33 says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, I don't know how this conversation got started. You imagine you're walking along, and Philip says to Thomas, like, hey, I wonder what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. Thomas is like, you know what? I think that Jesus is going to rally the crowds, and we're going to overthrow the Romans, and then we're going to be king, and I am going to be the greatest. And James and John butt in. is like, no, 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 no. You're not going to be the greatest. See, I'm going to sit on, my, on the right, and my brother here, he's going to sit on the left. We're going to talk to my mom. We're going to get it worked out. I don't know what the conversation looked like, but they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Right after Jesus had just told them the Son of Man is going to die, and after he is killed, he is going to rise again. Right after this, they're arguing about status. How could they do that? How could they argue about status? about who's going to be the greatest right after Jesus had just told them that he was going to go and die. I think all too often we look at the disciples with far too much condemnation because in the shadow of the cross, in the shadow of what God has done for us as believers, we argue the same thing. We still have the same arguments amongst ourselves. Let's take a step back and look at the church in America where churches are splitting over the color of the carpet or the position of the piano. How foolish. We see that the pride of the disciples led to foolish arguments. And the same thing is true today in our churches. Is it not? Pride is leading to foolish arguments. We argue about status. We argue about the pastor. We argue about music. We argue about stupid little things that don't matter. And when we do that, we are taking Christ out of the center of our worship and we're putting ourselves there instead. We may as well take the cross out and put a picture of ourselves up. But we don't want to go there. We don't want to talk about that. That's too much. But that's what we're doing. Now, before you misunderstand me, I'm not saying that that's how this church is. 
This is my first time here, so I don't know what things you guys talk about. I don't know what things you guys discuss. All I know is that in our churches, Christ should be lifted higher than anything else. And if we're not giving him glory in everything we do, in everything we say, then we are failing as a church. Christ should be the center, and we should be far behind him. So we see that the pride of the disciples and it led to foolish arguments. Next, we see that it leads to being closed to the truth. It leads to being closed to the truth. The disciples had been with Jesus for a long time now. They had seen him work. They had seen him heal. They had seen him minister to people. They had heard him teach. And yet, they were still too proud. So Jesus gives them another lesson. It says in verse 35, And he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. If anyone must be first, anyone desires to be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. How backwards this seems to us. In a world that is fighting to be first in everything, how backwards it seems to us to be a servant to all. Like white socks with black shoes, this is not a cultural norm for us. Jesus goes on to explain it further. He gives them an object lesson. Is there any kids in here that would be willing to volunteer? Like a little 12 or younger? Anybody? Jimmy, you want to come up here? Oh, you come on. Come on up here. All right, what's your name? Zach. Zach, how old are you? 12. 12. All right, so Jesus, giving them an object lesson, he takes a child, probably younger than Zach, and he takes him and puts him in front of them. And he says to them, he says, uh, after taking a child, he says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. So Jesus took a child like Zach. I'm sure you're a man, right? Yeah. All right, he's all grown up. But he takes a young, young man like Zach, puts him in front of him and says, you receive a child like this, you receive me. Now, understand that this was not the cultural norm either. Kids were not considered really worth much. Today, we, we would be heartbroken to see hungry kids. We are heartbroken when we see that. We see pictures of starving and hurting children all over the world, and it breaks our heart, and we long to help them. But that's not how it was in the culture in Jesus' day. Instead, a child like Zach was rejected by society. They weren't worth much. You're almost 13, so you'd be worth something soon, but you're not quite there. So... Thank you. You can sit down. Thank you, Zach. So in, in that society, children really weren't worth much. 
But the child that Jesus had there, like Zach, was a representation of a greater group. It was a representation of all that were rejected by society. And Jesus says, if you receive such ones as these, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive not just me, but the one who sent me. You receive God. As I was reading this and studying this, I found myself convicted. Uh, At the place I work at, Jimmy John's, there's a guy that stands outside many times and he begs. And I don't have a whole lot of money and I'm usually trying to get to work on time. So, um, you know, he asks me every time, do you have money? Do you have something? And I always say, I'm sorry, man, I don't. Um, But I haven't even taken time to get to know the guy's name. How often when we see a beggar do we reject them? How often when we see people out partying Friday nights do we judge them? Or even worse, how often do those people walk through the doors of our church and we write them off? Jesus' call to be humble is a call to receive the ones that the world rejects. The beggars, the homeless, the drunkards, the party animals, the prostitutes, the ones the world rejects. We are called to humbly receive and show the love of Christ to them. And when we do that, we receive Christ. But the disciples didn't get it. They were close to the truth. We can see that in the response here. John, after being told this, John says to Jesus in verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So after being told all this, John decides to tell Jesus about an independent exorcist. Someone who is independently casting out demons. He's not part of their group. We see that the pride of the disciples leads to cliques. The pride of the disciples leads to cliques. They didn't like that somebody else was casting out demons in Jesus' name because he wasn't part of their group. This irked them. This rubbed them the wrong way. Why is that? There's a couple of reasons. One is it probably uh, annoyed them because just before this, they weren't able to cast out a demon. And they had been walking with Jesus for a long time. And now this, this guy that's not even part of their group is casting out demons in Jesus' name. They're like, wow, talk about a slap in the face. So they tell him to stop because they want the glory. They don't want to share that with other people. Their pride leads to cliques. Hey, you're not one of us. Stop doing that. We have cliques in the church, and we have cliques in the body of Christ. They're called denominations. 
we look down at other churches that are different denominations than us. I know we're non-denominational, but that's a denomination too. And we, we look down at different denominations because they're not part of our group. But guess what? God is using them too. So our pride in who we are, our pride in our label, is leading to cliques. It's been said that 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour in America. Or maybe it's 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. It's the most segregated hour in America because everybody goes to their own individual little churches. We have cliques within the church, and we're not willing to share our glory with them. But Jesus has a different view of this. He says to them, Do not stop him, for no one who is able, or no one who does mighty works in my name, will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. So Jesus says, Don't stop him. He's doing great works in my name. We have to remember that this is all done under the shadow of the cross. Jesus knows that his time is coming to an end very shortly. And it won't be long before he enters Jerusalem. People go, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then a short time later, say the same people say, crucify him, crucify him. And then he won't be on earth anymore. But those who do great works in his name would not be able to deny that he is the Christ. And they are the ones that will carry on his work after he's gone. They are the ones that will tell the world about him. Just for an example, when I was 17, I got my first computer. Uh, this was during the whole Vista fiasco thing. You guys remember that? So I went with a Mac. Um, I'd only used a Mac like one other time in my life, but now I'm converted. Oh, apparently not everybody is. It's okay. It's all right. This is just an example. But uh, I like my Mac. After using it for four years without any real major issues with it, and it's still just as fast as it was when I first got it, I really like it. And I'm not going to go back to PC. <laughs> now, having used the Mac, I can't speak bad about it. Some of you may not agree, but I can't. I like it, and I'll always speak good about it. I'm a believer. That's how this guy was. He, cast, he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Having done that, he can't go back and be like, well, I think he's a fraud, because he had seen the great works that came through the name of Jesus. Those who are not against us are for us. It's the same in the churches, in our different denominations. But yet we segregate. We form cliques. And Jesus is saying, unite. Accept people that are not part of your group. I understand we have to be careful of doctrinal errors and stuff like that, but so many times the things that we split over are so minor, they really don't matter. So beware of clicks. Beware of your pride leading you to clicks. 
Jesus then says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is a picture of humility. Even the smallest, the smallest act of humility towards somebody else will not be unnoticed, will not go unnoticed, but will be seen by Christ. He moves on from there to a picture. He paints a picture to us of what it means to be a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ. In verse 42, it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Here Jesus shows us the value of the undervalued. And when I've read this in the past, I've always imagined he's going back to the picture of the small child that he had stand in front of him, like Zach. Whoever causes a child to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. But that's actually not necessarily what Jesus is saying. In the commentaries I've read, it's, they say that it's actually going back to the man that was casting out demons. One that's insignificant, an insignificant disciple. One that doesn't have the status of disciple. One of those little ones. A young Christian, if you will. Whoever causes one of these to stumble, it'd be greater, better for him he had a millstone hung around his neck and he was thrown to the depths of the sea. Remember, culturally speaking, for the Jews, the sea was something that was greatly feared. And drowning was considered the worst possible death. So this saying would have freaked the disciples out. So how do we cause little ones to stumble? How do we cause those that are still young in their faith to stumble? I think there's a few ways we can set a bad example for them. We can talk bad about people. Or we can keep them from using their gifts that God has given them. Those are definitely areas that we can cause ones that are young in their faith to go astray. That God places great value in those that we don't. Those that we consider insignificant. God considers of greatest significance. And we are called to help them, to nurture them, and to help them grow. How are we doing with that? From here, Jesus switches his focus a little bit. We see next the seriousness of sin. If your hand, in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire 
is not quenched. Now, what is Jesus saying here? This seems a little extreme. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Foot, cut it off. Eye, tear it out. Is Jesus really encouraging us to do that? The answer is no, he's, he's not. So rest assured that you're okay. We're good. This is a figure of speech called hyperbole. It's exaggeration for effect. Jesus is relaying to us how serious sin really is. So many times we don't see sin seriously enough. We don't take it seriously enough because we are under a blanket of grace. And thank God we are. But we have to realize how serious God sees sin because he doesn't want anything to be in between him and us. So why foot, foot, hands, and eyes? This is an all-encompassing statement. Hands represent the things that we do, like stealing. These are hands to steal. Our eyes represent the things that we look at, like lust and coveting. And our feet would represent the places that we go that are not right. So Jesus is saying, whatever it is that in your life that's keeping you from a relationship with me, whatever it is that's holding you back from having a full fulfilling relationship with God, take it out of your life. Get rid of it. Treat sin seriously. That's what Jesus is saying to us. And this whole casting into hell, it's better to enter the life lame than with two feet be cast into hell is a bit of a problem for me at least, I honestly believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. That you can't lose your salvation. I truly believe that. So Jesus is really just saying, treat sin seriously. Because God treats sin seriously. And the next thing we see is the importance of sacrifice. The importance of sacrifice. Verse 49 and 50, it says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if, salt, uh, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So there's many different interpretations of this. This is our rather puzzling Sayings and they're hard to understand, they're hard to figure out, and commentators have argued back and forth about it. The best one that I've found is that this is talking about offerings at the temple. Um, James R. Edwards says, Israelite burnt offerings were required to be wholly consumed by fire in order to be acceptable. Salt, too, was not only a sign of the covenant, but it was required to accompany all Israelite sacrifices. So what Jesus is saying is, I want you to live as a sacrifice. This is also repeated in Romans chapter 12, where we are called to be living sacrifices, to place ourselves on the altar, to allow our passions and our desires that are not in line with Christ to be burnt up completely. 
there's an importance to being a sacrifice for God. We are called to be a sacrifice for God. We are called to live on the altar. So my question for you is, are you on the altar today? Are you living on the altar? Are you allowing your life to be aligned with God and your passions and your desires that are not God's to be burnt up? Or are you living for yourself? Not long ago, I got off the altar. I decided that it was okay as long as I kept it in sight. And that has always left me empty and broken and hurting and crawling back to that altar saying, God, please forgive me. So for applications, we must remember the example of the cross and the great humility that Christ showed us. Jesus left us an example of humility, of humbling serving him and others in his name. We must remember that. Second, we must beware of the sin of pride. The sin of pride will lead us to foolish arguments. It will lead us to being close to the truth. And it will lead to cliques. We must be aware of that. And finally, we must humble ourselves to the undervalued and serve them the way that Christ has served us. Let us pray. Dear God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for these words, though they are hard. I pray that we will realize the great value in humility and live our lives humbly before you. Thank you for what you've done for us on the cross, how you humble yourself and came to earth. Pray that we will follow your example and humble ourselves to others. In Jesus' name, amen.